Just as a public service announcement for our listeners today, we did have a bit of an audio glitch for the first minute, minute 30, so please stick with us. Nancy and I do figure it out, and we have a fantastic and really wonderful conversation about empathy and what it means to us in our world as autistics and how it shows up in the world of others, so stick with us. You're listening to the Mind Your Autistic Brain podcast, the show for late identified autistics. Each week, you will hear the autism journey of another late identified person, including their hardest part, their best part, and insights they share just for you. So you know you are not alone on this journey, my friend. Find your person and community here each week. And don't miss the special editions of Creator Spotlight and Hot Topic with your hostess with the mostest, Social Audie. That's me, Carol Jean. Let's get started. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. I have a fantastic guest that came back, and thank you so much, Nancy, because Technicals ate the rest of our interview last time, and Nancy and I had such an amazing conversation that I couldn't stand it. We had to have another one. So Nancy has joined me again today. Thank you, Nancy Pearsall from Enigma Creative. Thank you so much for having me back, Carol Jean. It's always such a delight to get to talk to you. Oh, thank you, thank you. I definitely enjoy talking to you, my friend. So, Nancy, you and I had some pretty great conversations about empathy. And I know that you've done so much research just into the topic of empathy, but also into what it means into your life. And I'm so excited for you to share this with everybody. So, Nancy, take the floor. Go for it, my friend. Thank you so much. Okay, well... um, So for those who do not know, um, I am a fellow late identified um, and formally diagnosed. Um, I have that privilege. Autistic, I learned um, about my neurodiversity last January in 2020. And when I um, found this out, I knew nothing at all about autism. And so I began trying to educate myself and um, I started Uh, linking up with different community members of the neurodiversity community on Instagram and uh, reading a lot of their really wonderful posts. And um, I started, you know, noticing a pattern. One thing that people would talk about was the topic of empathy. And um, then I, at one point I was on Google and I started just, you know, again, trying to educate myself about autism. I would enter in in the Google search, um, do autistics have and, um, you know, if you enter some, you know, something in the Google search bar, a lot of times it will sort of, you know, um, give you different options below what you're typing. And one of the options said, uh, do autistics have empathy? And when I read that, my heart just kind of sank into my stomach. And I thought, people think that we don't have empathy. And I um, did, you know, more research into this, and it turns out that, yes, that is a very common misconception. And so today, um, I appreciate the chance to come back um, and speak on this, because it is one of the things in the autism community that I feel probably the strongest about, because not only do we have um, empathy in spades, Many times um, we have empathy to the degree that it can be uh, physically and emotionally debilitating. And so what I sort of mean by that is that um, 
my research uh, led me to discover that there are at least three different kinds of empathy. Um, most commonly, I see three types. Uh, I think I maybe one time saw four. And so um, I'm going to be talking today about the three types of empathy and give some examples from my personal life. Um, so away we go. When we, before we jump into that, Nancy, I do want to bring something up that I found very interesting. So on our side of things, sort of how this misconception that autistics lack or do not possess empathy was a misunderstanding in vernacular and vocabulary that was being used in scientific research early, early on into autism. And one of the research papers that specifically sort of started this horrible fallacy that is now out in the world was that they were talking about empathy, meaning a recognition of or acknowledgement of another person's feelings, not that we possessed or lacked empathy one way or the other, but that our that in the research, it was showing that the autistic participants lacked the ability to express empathy to other people in certain situations, which for those of us who have alexithymia and those of us who have all other types of, of sensory and emotional processing that doesn't always respond in the moment, this nomenclature that was used in this research because it was then interpreted by people who weren't reading the entire research paper. And they were reading basically what's called the abstract. And in research papers, you have something called the abstract. It's basically like the cliff notes of what happened in the research paper. And unless you read the details of a research paper, quite often you will miss how the terms are being defined and used within the context of that research paper. So that was something that was a really big, um, eye-opener to sort of see where that chain of events and how this misunderstanding of the world perceiving us to lack empathy sort of started. And it's it's just such a typical, neurotypical type of misunderstanding um, to just automatically say, oh, you know, they don't respond the way we do. And so therefore they lack empathy sort of rolls into this giant ball of the disaster that we are facing today as I sort of look at it, because it's it's like we fight this uphill battle now trying to convince people that we have feelings and that our feelings can get hurt very easily because we can be exceptionally empathetic and very sensitive. So Nancy, take the floor and, and, and tell us about these types of empathy. Thank you for that. That was amazing. Um, and that was new information to me. So that's very good to know. Um, and that makes total sense. Um, so the first type is, um, and I'm going to be giving definitions for these types um, uh, as provided by, um, there's a psychologist and an author named Daniel Goleman, and um, I really liked his definitions. So the first type is cognitive empathy, which is where um, you know how another person feels and what they might be thinking. The second type of empathy is emotional empathy, which is when you feel another person's emotions along with them as though their emotions are contagious. You take them on as your own. And the third type is compassionate empathy, 
where you not only understand um, what another person's perspective is and, and what they might be thinking and also what they might be feeling, but you're spontaneously moved to try to help them if needed. So having said all that, um, kind of before I go further, I want to kind of frame these three types of empathy up within the context of being autistic. So I feel like several things should be noted. And there are probably more things that could be added to this list, but these are what came, you know, that are top of mind to me. Um, first of all, of course, how each person experiences each type of empathy will vary. Um, for each autistic person, their experience of each type of empathy may fluctuate a great deal from moment to moment, um, you know, depending on a number of factors. And again, this is a short list of factors. Um, their emotional state, their immediate environment, and what's going on, you know, with the lighting, with the sound, with the spatial arrangement of objects, and so on. The weather, um, any co-occurring health conditions that they may be experiencing, how, you know, what their body is doing, um, and that includes hormonal fluctuations, um, other participants in the scenario, and how they are treating the autistic person, cultural norms that may be at play, the time of day, how overstimulated or understimulated a person may be, and so on. You know, like I said, that's a short list, but those are some things that kind of came to mind. So now I'm going to um, talk a little bit about uh, how I, as an autistic person, experience the world. And so this is specific to me. I'm not saying that every autistic has these experiences, but they may resonate with some of our neurodivergent listeners. So for me personally, I do have extreme challenges in filtering out um, stimulus that is external to me. Um, so if there's something going on in the immediate environment, um, I'm very easily um, impacted by that on a sensory level and also on a cognitive level. Um, unless I'm hyper-focused on a task, um, you know, in which case I have like laser-like uh, vision and attention on something that I'm doing and very few things can distract me. Another thing that I experience is that I often internalize what is happening beyond the physical boundary of my body as though the surrounding environment is part of my body. It's as though my nervous system has no insulation to filter or buffer sensory input that is around me. Um, and this does have a very direct impact on physical sensations I experience. It can do things like give me very bad headaches, migraines, nausea, vertigo, anxiety, um, feelings of disembodiment, um, crossover sensations resulting from sensory, um, you know, processing differences. For example, if I see um, a picture of a, you know, a dog's muddy nose or something that to me, um, you know, might just sort of like feel kind of weird or wrong to me. Sometimes I feel like I have that, um, that picture, whatever that might be like to have it in my mouth. Sometimes for whatever reason, I feel like I can feel the muddy dog nose <laughs> in my mouth, which I know might sound strange. Um, and You're then not I, alone. Really? <laughs> I'm not alone. 
you're not alone. And there's some really interesting neuroscience that goes into this. So there was actually a study that was looking at the brain and how it processed when it visually takes in texture. And you can look at an object, you can see the texture of something without ever having touched it before. And you will know what it feels like on your tongue. You can interpret and anticipate what it would feel like on your tongue. I know that sounds really weird, probably to the rest of the world, but to all of us who just went, oh my gosh, I know exactly what you mean about the dog's nose. We know exactly what you're talking about. Because if you look at, let's just say like a rough um, wood edge picture frame, and you've never touched it before, you are right now, you know exactly what it's going to feel like if you put your tongue on it. <laughs> that is crazy. That, that is so fascinating. Um, wow. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I can totally like, I feel like I have splinters in my mouth right now almost. Um, and, um, and so having said all that too, um, I know some some autistics are not bothered at all by like really uh, terrifying, tense, you know, jump scare type movies, um, you know, that have a lot of violence and gore. Um, honestly, it, it, my ability to watch those things kind of depends. If I, you know, if I'm watching Braveheart or 300 and it's a really bloody scene, for some reason, actually, that doesn't bother me. But when I see things that I know are real that incorporate violence, especially if those acts are being uh, committed to animals. Um, or, you know, if somebody, you know, in, in real life that I know is like walking past and they have like, you know, some kind of physical injury that looks very painful, I will feel it in my body. I feel it throughout my body, um, especially in my knees. I get like sharp pains and um, I get achy all over and my legs will buckle. Um, so, so back to the three types of empathy. Um, based on my own experiences, as well as what I've read from other autistics, especially on Instagram, um, it seems to be not uncommon for ex autistics to experience pitfalls with neurotypicals, um, especially, and sometimes also other neurodivergent people. Um, with cognitive empathy. Um, so this makes complete sense to me um, when one understands that in order for cognitive empathy to translate well between two people or two or more people, um, all parties involved need to think and experience reality in similar ways. So um, these types of misunderstandings are nobody's fault, but too often autistics get blamed for their blind spots when really neurotypicals have just as many blind spots as autistics do. Um, and so yes, to go a step further, I would argue that even um, two autistic or otherwise neurodivergent people can face the same problem if their traits are at odds. And I so, love that about what you shared because that's one of the things that was a really big aha moment for me learning that I was autistic late in life, I also became aware that the rest of the world didn't experience the world the way that I did. I knew that people 
thought differently or experienced things somewhat differently, but I did not realize how drastically different it was. And so that does make being able to, and this was something that that really falls into what I, I teach in Mind Your Autistic Brain to help other autistics sort of understand this and get to acquire these things that we didn't know before. And one of those things is that you can't predict or have that cognitive empathy where you're able to think about what the other person might be feeling or experiencing without some commonality, but also without any history. If you don't have a history of understanding of what that other person has experienced in their life, then it's very difficult to predict what they mean when they say something or how they're presenting it. And sometimes those histories are a culmination of how we experience other people in the world in general. And it's sort of this collection of experiences and histories that we then use as predictors for understanding or connecting with someone else's emotions or perspective. So I love that you took the time to really dig into this, Nancy. This is a really good one. Thank you. I love I love that about having the history to kind of refer back to to help you predict. I think that is that you're absolutely right. Like that is so important. And I had never thought about that. Um, one example that comes to mind for me um, as a mix, you know, an instance where cognitive empathy uh, presented a challenge for me uh, with a neurotypical friend. <laughs> was a couple of years ago, uh, my husband and I were walking through the grocery store and I bumped into an old uh, girlfriend of mine. Um, we, you know, hadn't seen each other in a couple of years and she um, was about to have a party and she very, very sweetly invited us to the party. Um, but when she did so, I, um, I kind of, you know, asked who else might be there because I, you know, we have a lot of um, associates in common. Um, and a lot of these people, uh, you know, were from a period of my life that was sort of very difficult. And I knew that I would not personally be comfortable kind of like in, a, you know, in a Petri dish with these people at a party. And so as much like, this was really hard for me um, because I really, you know, I really uh, wanted to hang out with this person. I kind of would have preferred that it was a one-on-one, -on -one, but in the moment, spontaneously, didn't really know how to react to that because she was looking at me like she was expecting me to say, of course, we'll be there. Um, so the thing about me is that, you know, and I know that I'm not alone um, in this, is that uh, ambiguity uh, is very uncomfortable for me. I also all the time I'm having a lot of thoughts. I'm not saying that those thoughts are useful or even interesting, but I have a lot of them. And so I thought I would be doing my friend a favor if I was just sort of direct with her um, and, you know, told her in the moment um, to kind of spare her the extra task or thinking of having to track two more RSVPs to this party. And uh, because ambiguity is uh, uncomfortable for me, I, I value when people are direct with me. And I mistakenly throughout my life have made the assumption that other people value that too. So I felt very put on the spot, even though, you know, it was a very sweet invitation. And I was kind of like, 
thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, to be honest, we probably won't go. And um, she just kind of stared at me blankly, and I was sort of oblivious, and I was like, thanks, and I gave her a hug, and then my husband and I walked off, and my husband, you know, Johnny, who is neurotypical, was like, what the heck did you just do? Well, he was, like, mortified, and um, I think he, you know, made probably some joke about, who do you think you are, Larry David? Um, because I, I really do, I, I'm a lot like Larry David at times. Um, so after, you know, he and I talked about it for a while, and, you know, after um, having some time to, to process what I, you know, kind of bamboozled my friend with, I decided to message her on Facebook and kind of explain why I took that approach, and she was totally cool with it, very understanding. We had a good laugh, which was good because my, my intentions were good. Yeah. I think that happens so often in our world that it becomes this um, norm, sadly. And that's one of the things that I, am, I learned, some things that I have become aware of that I try and knowledge share with our group because it is such a, a huge gap in understanding and perspective. You know, like you're just like, well, look, I, I already could see 50 steps ahead that this was not going to go well. This was not going to be fun. I'm going to show up to the party. I want to see my friend. And then it is just going to go sideways because of these other people that really I don't want to be around. So, you know, I'm just going to save you the hassle. I'm going to be a good friend. And I'm just going to say, no, we're probably not going to come anyway. And the delivery had the best of intentions. The reception was just like, oh, my God, you hate me. You don't even want to come to my party. And you were just like straight up telling me I wouldn't even bother showing up to your house. Oh, my God. You know, and somebody on the receiving end of that that has no context for your brain already working 50 steps ahead is going, wow, that is incredibly rude and you really just hurt my feelings. And, you know, can you just slap me in the face next time? Seriously. And, and it's not intentional. And it happens to us all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I've had that same thing happen in my earlier years before I knew the difference. But what was really interesting is that, you know, we all kind of have that freeze moment where it's like, oh, crap, they want me to answer. Um, Okay. And then you start like, you know, going through the, the Rolodex that flips in your head at 900 miles an hour to find the appropriate response. And that was one of the things that I shared over the holidays uh, in the holiday survival guide was when someone invites you to do something and you really don't want to go, you know, and there's this great uh, meme out there for ADHD because I'm also ADHD. It's just like, yeah, I'll be thinking about that. Or we'll definitely look at our calendar. And it's like, nope, definitely not. You know, and inside your head, these are all the things you're thinking, you know, this is your polite response. But it it's like with your friend, it would, you know, with sort of what I did over the holidays and sort of help people have a script out to sort of have that to in, be in place so that you can respond in those moments. Because sometimes it's like, I will totally freeze. And I just don't, I'm just like, I don't want to go. That cannot come out of my mouth because that is not serving the relationship, right? And really, that's what we're we're trying to do in our lives is to have those relationships where we're we're connecting and it is what enriches our world. So it's okay. 
Thank you so much for your kind invitation. I really appreciate it. That means so much to me. We have something already planned, I believe, for that weekend. So I would love to get in touch with you and let's set up a coffee where we can just sit one-on-one -on -one and visit because I would love to hear how you've been and what's been going on and just, you know, that kind of thing. But if you aren't like prepared in your head and for that, it's just like your whole body freezes and you're like, whoa, okay. So then you just sort of brain dump what's happening in your brain and the delivery doesn't always work. And then you've got like fallout. The bridge has just been set on fire. Somebody just threw gas on it. And then you're just trying to clean up the mess and you, it just makes you feel worse. And it's just no fun. I wish that I had had um, either you with me in that moment or that information in that moment because yes, I, I lit the bridge on fire and I threw some gas on it and then I gave her a hug and I walked away. Um, but you know, uh, we live and we learn. <laughs> um, and an example uh, of emotional empathy. Um, so again, emotional empathy is when, you know, we feel another person's feelings with them. Um, and I remember an example of this. Um, I remember being in all throughout school, um, you know, whether it was elementary school, middle, high school, college, and even, you know, being in the working world, if somebody was giving a presentation, um, it's, it's the, it's, you know, sitting in the audience and watching somebody speak in front of the group of people that you're sitting in. And I, you know, in elementary school, um, I, I, you know, I was always a people pleaser and um, I always wanted to make people feel better. And I could often tell that my teachers, when they were teaching, um, were not being paid attention to by many kids in the class who were goofing off, you know, um, shooting rubber bands at each other, passing notes and that kind of stuff. And I was mortified, mortified, because I was looking at my teacher and I could feel their frustration and how much, even in some cases, that they were extremely nervous about talking in front of a group. And I wanted to put them at ease. I wanted to give them my attention and let them know, look, I'm listening to you. Somebody, you know, gives a you know what. Somebody is paying attention to you. And I was hoping that I could set an example. So this is ironic because, um, you know, another thing that we often hear in the autistic community is that we can't maintain eye contact. Well, I have no problem with that when the other person is doing the speaking most of the time. Um, uh, you know, and of course, the other thing we hear is that, you know, we don't have empathy. Um, so here I was constantly making eye contact in the classroom, um, and I often became the teacher's pet as a result. Um, but that's kind of, you know, a side note. And then um, another example, uh, a little perhaps darker example, much darker example, um, was that probably about a decade ago, um, long before I knew that I'm autistic, and I'm also an ADHDer, long before I knew any of that, I was watching the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War, and it you know, was showing photographs from the Civil War, and um, it showed a photograph of one of the battlefields that was, you know, screaming with bodies. And I don't know how, I don't know why, but my mind like magically transported me onto that battlefield when I was watching that. Um, and I literally felt like I was surrounded by all of 
the gory and unpleasant things that you can imagine that were, you know, happening there at the time. Um, you know, every one of my senses was affected, was impacted. And so I was immediately immersed in these sensory details that were extremely, you know, so vivid and graphic. Um, I began to have a meltdown. And of course, I didn't know about sensory processing differences. I didn't have any idea what a meltdown was. All I knew was that all of a sudden, I was on the floor of my living room in a fetal position, crying and having all these super graphic images of war, the smells, the sounds, um, the textures, the, the visuals washing over me and through me. And I, I couldn't stop crying. Um, and, you know, that was not the only time that something like that happened. I mean, my life has been filled with instances like that. Um, and again, never having the knowledge of what a meltdown was or names to explain any of these um, experiences has been extremely upsetting, frustrating, and um, so on. So I later, you know, I was under the care of a psychiatrist at that time. And um, when I uh, described that to them, um, they mistakenly told me that I was experiencing psychosis. And as I mentioned before, the last time um, that I got to chat with you here on your show, um, you know, this it was actually this instance that um, determined the next 10 years I was put on antipsychotic medications for psychosis that I never had because I'm not psychotic. Um, and that, you know, negatively impacted my physical health by making me gain 100 pounds. So those are a couple of exam examples of emotional empathy, you know, to say nothing of just all the, the, the times that I've been around other people who've been crying or upset or who've been like, you know, um, perhaps having their own meltdowns and not knowing that they were autistic and me feeling everything along with them. Um, so that is, that is certainly something that can happen, um, you know, in our community. It really does. And, oh, Nancy, <laughs> I, I, you so spoke to my heart on this because this is one of those things that when you don't know, that's how you experience the world. And, or I'm sorry, you know, you experience the world that way, but you don't know that other people don't experience the world that way. Um, I had a really hard time because I'm like you, I, I, you and I had this conversation and you even made a fantastic post on Instagram about this, about being very intentional about what you choose to consume in your content, what you listen to, what you watch, what you read, because for people like us who are incredibly consumed in all sensory areas, what we watch, what we read, what we consume directly and deeply affects and impacts us so much so that, you know, I couldn't understand why if I would experience something, you know, like somebody did something and it was kind of embarrassing, I would physically feel that embarrassment. And I would, it was like, it was happening to me. I can watch it on TV and I still feel, you know, embarrassed for the other person, you know, if something happens or, you know, there are situations where I, I don't watch horror movies like you. I don't watch horror movies because, you know, and there's certain things where I can disconnect the reality from it. But if it has a hint or a feel of reality to it, I connect with it very deeply. And there are certain, 
you know, types of war movies or action movies, I can't watch them because I can smell the gunpowder. I can taste it. It is, I can, it is, I am there and I am physically experiencing what is happening in the moment. And I thought everybody experienced the world that way. And then I learned they didn't. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, I am such a freak. I am so broken. What the heck is wrong with me? And then I thought, well, why can't you do it? Maybe you're broken. And then I found out there's all these other people in our community that experience it the same way. And that there's a word for it. There's a word for it. And it's so amazing because it's such a gift. And there's so many times that it feels like this negative and it feels like this really big, heavy, weighty thing to carry with you in life that you so deeply feel that you are so strongly impacted by the rest of the world, by the rest of the world's emotions or, or even what you hear or see or read in the world that it, it sometimes can stop you in your tracks and can completely derail whatever emotional stage you were in in that moment. And then you are completely off in this other world that may feel horrible. But I started to step back and look at it and say, you know what? It's like anything else I've learned and discovered about myself as an autistic person. It's that I do experience the world differently. And it isn't a negative. It is an incredible positive because not everybody in the world can do that. And there's somebody out there that I can say, I know how you feel. And when I say I know how you feel, I truly do. I am truly connecting with that person in a way nobody else can. And it's not a negative. It's a positive. And I think that sometimes those things that we look at in our world, when we start to learn more about all the struggles and all the challenges, and, and we are initially seeing them as negatives until we start to peel back and really see how they play a part in our life. then we can also start to see that in that balance, there are those positives, that there are those things that really enrich our world and enrich the world of those who are in our lives. Thank you. That's a really good point. I, I am sharing about things that are sort of you know, very dark and uh, can be very traumatic and unpleasant, but it should be, you're right, it should be mentioned that the same thing, the same phenomenon makes me experience beauty and like love and wonder and joy and different aspects of spirituality, probably on a level that a lot of people just don't because they're not wired this way. Um, and again, not saying that one is better than another. It's just kind of, you know, two sides to the same coin. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for a lot of these experiences because they have, um, you know, um, they have, while a lot of them have been very, very, um, you know, dark and hard to digest, um, you know, that same capacity uh, that is sort of carved out of me as a, as a human being um, for the darkness, that's how great my capacity is to sort of appreciate the light, the beauty, the beautiful things, the good things, the things that are loving and, and positive. 
and it makes me um, and a lot of other people, I think, in our community have a greater capacity for expression um, and creativity and things like that. Um, so now I, I kind of want to talk about the last category, which is the compassionate empathy. Um, and if you need any examples of um, how compassionate um, autistics can be, again, you know, being moved to help others, just take a look around at how many autistics um, are active in advocacy. Um, many, you know, are very passionate um, about social justice for different causes, um, including neurodiversity. A lot of us, when, when we find out that we are neurodiverse, and especially if we didn't know for a long time and our lives have been greatly impacted by it, we can't help but become advocates um, for others because we know how our lives were impacted um, not knowing for so long um, why we are the way that we are. Um, also, a lot of, you know, autistics are uh, or have been at some point in time uh, vegetarian or vegan, choosing, you know, very compassionate lifestyles. Um, I spent the better part of my career working in nonprofits as a fundraiser um, because I really wanted to put my energy into work that felt like a vocation, trying to better the lives of others. And um, again, I, that, I don't think that makes me superior in any way, but I just, you know, I, along with a lot of other members of the community, have a, have a very deep and genuine desire to try to leave things better than we found them. Um, and so one thing that may surprise, especially neurotypical listeners, is that this compassionate empathy uh, for myself, and I know after having spoken to you a little bit about this, Carol Jean, I know that I'm not the only one. My compassionate empathy can even extend to include inanimate objects. Um, I hear some people saying, what? Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, if I go to the grocery store and I buy a fresh batch of like paper table napkins for using, you know, at dinner time or something, and I take them out of their little plastic wrapper and I have these new napkins, but there's still some in the drawer. I will put the new ones underneath the older ones because in my mind, I'm thinking the ones that were already in there have been, they're, they're first in line. They've already, they've been waiting longer to be used. And it would be rude if I put the new ones on top of them because they've been waiting and I want to be polite. Yes, I really think this way. Um, Another example is that you're not alone. You're not alone. And I I just I love it. I love it so much because there's so often that I I so everything has an energy. Everything has a life existence on an atomic level to me. Everything does. Everything has an energy. Everything has a life and a purpose. And I when we were talking about this the other day, I was just like, oh my gosh, me too. I would be like, well, we've been here in this drawer waiting and it's our turn next. And you would really hurt my feelings if you just stuffed me to the bottom and crammed other napkins on top of me. And I completely understood that. And it's just kind of like, it's like with my shoes and my socks. And I know this is like, okay, here we go. Here's, here's a deep personal share here. <laughs> All right. I love Marie Kondo. 
and tidying up when I was going through this huge cross-country move. I watched every, binge-watched every episode of Tidying Up that I possibly could. And I honestly, deeply connected with her. So somewhere we relate real well. And she was talking about her socks and things like that. So she doesn't ball up or, or fold the edge of the socks over. She puts them together and then gently folds them in half. She's like, they work so hard to take care of your feet. Then why would you gonna why would you stress them and continue to make them work even in the drawer? And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been so mean to my poor socks. How could I have done that? So the minute I saw that, I ran in and I took every pair of socks, all my panties, every all my bras, everything, and I just I refolded them so that they were really gently. And I apologized to them as I put them back in the drawer. And I said, I'm so sorry I was stressing you. And I have never gone back to bawling socks ever again. <laughs> Even Josh's socks go in the drawer, nice and folded. And he was like, I, I, I can't get my socks like this. This is freaking me out. Could you please ball my socks? And so now when I do it, I apologize as I roll his sock top over. And I'm like, I'm really sorry. I promise. It, I'm not doing it on purpose. I kind of pet him before I put him in the drawer. Oh, my gosh. Carol Jean, you are a woman after my own heart. Okay, yeah. So that's going to, this is, a, this is great. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, okay, I have two more examples of, the, of this. Um, one of them is that recently um, I, uh, I was, you know, I had to find a parking space in a parking garage. And there, it was like a sixth level parking garage. And I was, I usually park on the fifth level, but there was nothing there. And so I went up to the top. And the sixth level didn't have a roof over it. <clears throat> and um, that was fine. But the only spot was this one kind of strange spot that it it was really weird, I thought. Uh, it didn't have, you know, like if you pull into a spot where the nose of your car ends, you would think that there would be like a concrete barrier or something, especially if you're up on the sixth you know, the roof of this parking garage, and, and there was just a couple of wire cables. And so to me, I'm thinking, I can't park my car there. That's very precarious. Um, my, my car, what if it's scared of heights? What if it feels like it's going to fall off the edge of this urban cliff? And I thought, I can't do that to my car. I don't care. I'm going back down. And I went all the way back down. And so I just, I couldn't park there. And I started asking myself, like, you know, why am I, um, why am I feel, feeling this way? Why am I thinking this way? Because I'm constantly analyzing myself. And I just thought, well, maybe, you know, um, I'm scared of heights. And so I'm maybe projecting my fear onto my car so that I can have, like, in some way, maybe a more concrete relationship with my fear of heights. Um, and then my last example is that uh, I, you know, I tend to bond because like you said, you know, um, everything is energy, everything is vibrating at a certain rate, everything is protons, neurons, electrons, um, sorry, <laughs> neutrons, hello, need to go back to school, um, protons, neutrons, and electrons, and um, so every time that I uh, have been uh, operating in a place for a long time, I tend to, you know, you get used to seeing the same things, the same, like, uh, you know, desk, the same chairs, and the same, you know, uh, mailbox or whatnot. And so I, I recently left a job where I had been working for um, 
for you know a few years and um, somebody had a pinata on their desk and it had a little face on it. It was like a pinata, like a little donkey, and it had a really cute little face. And um, I may or may not have liked to pet the muzzle every time I walked by if nobody was around. And I've taken pictures of it, and I just, every time I saw it, you know, if I was having a bad day, I would look at it, and I would just kind of feel like I would feel better. And so when I, I, uh, I recently left my job and I had to say goodbye to the pinata, um, there have been other times too, you know, um, with plants. I know plants are living, sentient beings, but there have been times, you know, working in very cold corporate um, high rises downtown, there will be a lonely hallway that's just kind of gray with awful fluorescent lighting. And at the end of the hallway, there's this beautiful plant in a pot that's like looking out, you know, it's like uh, positioned next to a window looking 20 stories down. And, you know, if I get off the elevator, if I'm having a hard day in the past, I've been known to go over to the plant and just kind of pet its leaves and just sit there thinking, like, how you doing? <laughs> so I've, you know, experienced that, too. So in conclusion, empathy is very much alive and well in the autistic community. I think um, people just need to have a greater awareness of the different types. And like you said uh, at the beginning of this talk, um, understand where the misinformation and misunderstanding came from to begin with. Nancy, this has been so fantastic. And I love that we were able to come together and have this conversation because for me and, and how I approach the world is that, you know, I have to know more about me in order to express it and convey it and share it with the person next to me matters in my world. It's a relationship that I value and I want them to be able to see and understand how I see the world, just like I want to see and be able to value and understand how they see the world. And I think that that's one of the things that is such a wonderful way that we bridge that gap and we start to, to translate the language differences that are happening between us and the rest of the world. And just knowing more about ourselves and knowing that there are three different types of empathy, and there's probably more, but this is where we're starting because this is the most common and the most talked about. And to be able to identify how that shows up in our world, what it means to us, and then to share how we perceive it and how we experience it with the person that really matters to us and ask them to share with, with us in return. Say, hey, you know, when I watch shows like this, I really feel an experience that that scene like I'm there. Do do you experience that too? And and I just as a quick point, I am a huge football fan, American football fan, and I just want neurotypical people and I want autistic people to think about this for a second. When they come running out of the tunnel and they're rubbing the bronze head on the way out, they're loving on an inanimate object and giving it feelings and emotions and attributing certain characteristics to it. So I can't say that it is not, that it's specifically an autistic thing, but it's definitely a human thing that we all do on some level. So in finding that commonality, we can also relate to each other and begin to start conversations about how we differ in our experiences of the world and how we feel and the emotions that we experience each and every day. Nancy, we got cut short last time, 
And so I would love for you to share what your best tip is for someone who's starting their autism journey today. Sure, thank you. And I love that, by the way. I would say um, just begin to educate yourself on the different aspects of autism if you're not familiar. Um, And the more you do that and the more self-awareness you start to gain, um, you might consider some different things. You might read up on burnout and see if you um, identify with any of um, uh, sort of the the symptoms of burnout. Um, I would recommend that you join Carol Jean's Mind Your Autistic Brain community on Facebook. I really would because uh, Carol Jean has some wonderful journaling prompts to get clarity around um, things like burnout. Um, I would also um, just be, be kind and patient and gentle with yourself and Um, start to perhaps give more credence to uh, that little voice or or your gut feeling um, in certain situations that perhaps you've always kind of hushed in the past because you thought, you know, you were just um, uh, crazy or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, But but trust yourself. Learn, learn, do what it takes to learn to trust yourself because uh, more often than not, that little voice or that gut feeling Um, there's going to be something to that. Oh, Nancy, that's such wonderful, wonderful insights and really great tips to share. And I love that because that was one of the things that was the hardest for me and it has taken the longest to build. And that was the trust in myself because it has been eroded for decades because of things I thought I was supposed to be doing and then they didn't work out or I made a choice that didn't go well. So then I start to trust, not trust, my own picker, as my grandmother called it. You know, your your picker's broken. And it's one of those things that you are reacting and you're making choices based on what you think the world expects of you. So it's not all lining up. And that's one of the beautiful things about this journey back to you with the unveiling method is that you start to regain those pieces and start to re regain the trust within yourself. So I'm so glad you shared that. That's beautiful. Nancy Pearsall, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing the insights into empathy, sharing your experiences and helping the next person in line because we all face this each and every day. And it's such a wonderful thing to know that we're not alone. Thank you, Nancy. And if you want to check out Nancy's amazing Instagram page, please go follow her at enigma.creative on Instagram. She is a gorgeous poet and a beautiful creative, and she curates some fantastic slides that she picks up throughout her week in Instagram and then shares them in a curated slide carousel. So you don't want to miss this. Make sure you tune in and and follow Nancy and get all the goodness that she has going on. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much, Carol Jean. It's been a pleasure.